Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, keep your Bibles open. So we're going to look at um, that whole passage um, this morning uh, from verse 5 and through to verse 18. Uh, and as we go through it this morning, we're not going to stop and pause and unpack every gem that is here. Uh, there is a, a truckload of, of jewels in this passage. Uh, it is extraordinary to read through it. And so we're not going to look at everything this morning, but what I'd encourage you to do is, during the week, read through it again. Perhaps meditate on a few verses each day of the week. Uh, and just to uh, deepen your understanding and, and, and appreciation of what God is saying to us in this passage. But we're going to try and do our best, though, to give you a bit of a survey uh, this morning. Let's pray, ask God to help us, and then we'll start digging. Father, uh, you, you know our hearts and where we are this morning. You see the circumstances that we're facing at the moment during the week and today, our joys and our sorrows, our stresses. So, Father, we ask that in your great compassion that you might feed us with your word today. Please, God, convince us about Jesus, strengthen us, encourage us with your words about your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't seen the movie Oppenheimer as yet, and I'm sure you've probably heard about it, uh, it was one of the biggest grossing movies in 2023. It's currently uh, cleaning up all of the uh, awards uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Oppenheimer uh, is about the scientist, uh, no surprises, Robin, uh, Robert uh, Oppenheimer. Uh, he played a really crucial role in the creation of the atomic bomb. So the movie is all about this. And so the first atomic weapons were dropped on Japan at the end of the Second World War, and he was kind of behind at one of the leading figures. And, and with the atomic bomb, the world changed. You couldn't look at the world the same way anymore. And in the movie, though, Kenneth Branagh, he's playing one of the characters, he's playing the, the role of a Danish physicist uh, who's part of the team who are working on the, the atom bomb, and he says of the atomic bomb, quote, this isn't a new weapon, it's a new world, unquote. So the atomic bomb, like so many inventions uh, before and since, remind us of the astonishing capability of the human mind and ingenuity, how brilliant we are. And also how terrifying and destructive we can be. With all the discoveries that we have made over the millennium, with all the progress that we make, we, we play catch-up all of the time. As soon as something is invented, we make progress. We're then stopping and thinking, how do we control this thing that we've just made? Like, what, how are we meant to deal with this thing that we've just created? It's like, wow, okay, we can blow up an entire city with a single bomb now. Maybe we need some laws to govern this. Maybe we need some international attention to figure out how to control this thing. And, of course, there are, there are similar struggles with, uh, say, smartphones or social media. How do we control it? How do we protect, and in particular, young people from all of the bad that can come about from these useful inventions? Uh, AI is another example that you'll hear a lot of people wrestling with right now. How do we control this thing called artificial intelligence? Or how will it begin to control us and to change us? We are never fully in control over world events, 
over circumstances that are going on in our lives around us, say at school or work, even in our own life and heart. We saw that during the week, didn't we? When a storm came rushing through Melbourne and half a million homes lost their power and still tens of thousands have no electricity. Well, friends, the Bible shows us God is in control. We may not be and we are not in control, but God is in control and God's control and care is demonstrated most vividly in his son, the Lord Jesus. And that's what we're going to be exploring together this morning in God's word. Uh, so there are three paragraphs in this, in this uh, section of Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at each one under a different heading. The first one is this. The future belongs to Jesus. The future belongs to Jesus. What does verse 5 say? It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. In the first couple of weeks in our new series in Hebrews, we've been seeing, haven't we, something of the majesty and greatness of God's Son. He is seated on a throne. He is greater than the angels. But now comes a twist from verse 6 onward, we read, But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. I wonder, do you know the name of, of anyone who was born in the year 900 BC? Anyone? Or maybe, can you think of, of an individual who died in the year 200 AD? Let's make it a little bit easier. What about someone, the name of someone who either was born or who died in the 1950s in the Northern Territory? Do you know when I was born? Don't worry, I don't know when you were born, so it's all good. The Gospels say, Jesus says, God knows the number of hairs on our head. That's not very many for some of you, but what a, what a profound insight. So what we're... Psalm 8 is saying, what is man that God is mindful of us? There is no human being who is coming into the world or has been conceived or who dies without God's knowledge and care for them. That's a wonderful thing to hold on today, isn't it? But Psalm 8 is saying more. It's saying that, but it's also saying more. Now, to help us understand what we're reading in these verses, uh, it's worthwhile, I think, saying something about Bible translations. This is not a conversation we have very often, but today I think it will be helpful because it's relevant to our Bible reading. Now, as, as a church, we choose to use the new NIV Bible translation. It is a great Bible translation, which is why we use it. But as with all Bible translations, you have a, gru a group of our language experts who are making decisions about what's the best words to translate from the original language into English so we can understand God's words faithfully, truly, accurately. And so modern translations, not all, but a lot of modern translations, including the new NIV, try to use a lot of inclusive language. Now, that's not wrong or bad. That's a good thing. So, for example, when the Bible uses the word man or mankind, it's often meaning humanity. So men and women, that's what's been spoken about. And so it's really helpful to translate those words, those verses like that. Sometimes when the Bible writers are using masculine pronouns, they're also trying to convey a theological point. And so we don't want that obscured. So here in original language... Uh, in, in the new NIV, sometimes in these verses it talks about them 
It's using plural language. In the original language, though, it's always masculine singular. It is him, him. So the text says, you made him a little lower. What, are you, what is man that you're mindful of him? Now, our NIV, NIV is not wrong. Uh, the, the older NIV translation, though, is probably a little better. See, on the one hand, Psalm 8 is speaking about humanity. That's what it's about. And God's relationship to us. And so it is right to say humanity or us, them. Yeah, and what a thought again, isn't it? What is man that God is mindful of us? So it's right. But Hebrews is also making a further point. And it's pointing out that this is a messianic psalm. In fact, it is about him. As the original language conveys, it is not them, it is him. It's singular because it's talking about God's son. And with that, come with me now to the text. See the twist. The one whom angels worship became lower for a period of time, became lower than the angels. The son is God, like God's son eternal. He is so stupendous in power and glory. He shouldn't be deferring or hiding or giving up a fraction of his authority for a millisecond. But the text says he became lower and he does so for a lifetime, for 33 years. Now, sometimes we give up things when we attach value to them. We might lay aside stuff perhaps for our children or to a good cause because we see there's value in those things. But God making himself lower, why did he do that? Well, we're told it's because the sun is setting a future. So as we explore this idea of the eternal son of God making himself lower, it's set in the context of how God is setting a future. He's making a future. That's the larger point that we see here in verses 5 to 9. So this Jesus who became low, so it's talking about him becoming a human being, is in fact the one whom God is going to give the world. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That the one who has the right over the future of the world isn't America or China, or Russia, or the left, or the right, or Apple, or Elon Musk, or the UN, or any of those things. Now, we're told God has subjected the world to come, not to with the angels, but to his son. So the future is given to the Lord Jesus. But then, as Hebrews points out, but at the moment, it kind of doesn't feel like that, particularly. As we're looking around the world, it doesn't always look like you know, the future belongs to Jesus. That's what verse 8 is saying. At present, we don't see everything that is subject to him. But in other words, God in his sovereign purpose and power has given everything to his son. Everything will be subject to him. Jesus is Lord, that is true. But experientially, as we're looking around the world, we, we, and we, we don't see everything and we're not seeing everyone submitting to Jesus. I'm sure you're aware, you know, people around Melbourne are living quite comfortably without reference to Jesus. And at the same time, some of the things that we see are kind of frightening and disturbing. We see things that are conflicting with God's ways. Things fall apart, things fail. Even clambering out of bed this morning, you're reminded, yeah, maybe I'm falling apart as well. See, Hebrews is reminding us, though, that the final and full realization of God's promise for the future is still future. 
We're not there yet. We're not seeing the new creation yet, but nonetheless, God is in control. And so Hebrews says, see what the Son has done. So look at verse 9 with me. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So God put into play his plan. And what God has demonstrated is going to guarantee what we still don't yet see. A friend of mine on Valentine's Day put up a post on Facebook. Uh, and by the way, I know when, when someone says, you know, a friend of mine, you normally think, okay, he actually means, you know, himself. I am not talking about me, just putting it out there. Uh, that's not code for this is what Murray did uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, just to be clear. Anyway, he shared what he was doing uh, for his wife. This is what he posted. And he said, uh, he and his wife were not big on Valentine's Day, but I tried to get her some leftover flowers from her funeral today. Unfortunately, the flowers were cleared out before I could get to them, but it's the thought that counts. <laughs> That's great. I've learned a new strategy. The thought that counts? Hebrews is saying God didn't just think up a plan. He carried it out. And his plan was this, that his son, the Lord Jesus, would humble himself. He divested himself of that eternal honor that is rightfully his. He exchanged his royal robe for, a, for dirty, smelly clothes. He went through suffering and death. And now he is crowned with glory. So see God's purpose. We're told there's a purpose. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The very thing that ends the future is what? It's death, isn't it? What kills the future is death. Death kills off everything. It's very good at doing it. But we read that Jesus has overcome that unmovable obstacle. There is a future, and the future belongs to Jesus. That's our first point. Jesus has a future. The future is with Jesus. It is his Second point, in our next paragraph, Jesus shares the future with us. Jesus is about sharing the future with others. He loves to share his rule. He loves to share his victory over death with others. So, so listen to how God views us, that is, those who are trusting the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Many sons and daughters. He's not standoffish. He's not disconnected. But no, he is in the business of adopting many sons and daughters and bringing them to glory. You know, our communities and our schools and workplaces, we love to talk about social cohesion and social inclusion. And you know, we don't want people to be outsiders but insiders and we want being tolerant to everything and everyone. And we love talking that talk, don't we? Now, of course, the Bible says the reason why we're outsiders and the reason why we are separated from God is because of sin. By nature and by choice, we, we reject God and his rule and righteousness. So we're not born inside God's kingdom, but as, well, to use Jesus' words, we're born again. And here Jesus and, and, and the writer of the Hebrews is talking about this language of adoption. And it's stunning, isn't it? I didn't belong to God. But God welcomed me. 
I didn't even want to, but he lovingly drew me in. To be called a son or daughter means God has formally and legally and personally adopted us into his family. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us. As he continues, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. What are we meant to do with that phrase, God made Jesus perfect? Isn't he already perfect? <laughs> well, I mean, was, is it saying that Jesus was somehow less than perfect? Was he sinful in some way? Was he falling short of God? Well, no, of course, we know it's impossible for God's son to sin. Now, the word perfect sometimes means complete. Now, it's not talking about moral perfection here, but it's saying how God made complete, that is, he finished the work of salvation through what Jesus suffered. That's what it's talking about. In verse 11, with this result, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Understand, verse 11 is true for every man and woman who has been made holy, that is set apart by God because of Jesus. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. There's a truth to hold on to, isn't there, today? He's not ashamed of us. <laughs> He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We're family, Jesus is saying. And so instead what Jesus is declaring, look from verse 12 and 13, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. That word assembly in verse 12 is actually the same word as church. So like picture the church in heaven before God for all eternity. We're talking millions upon millions and ten millions and millions and millions and millions of people through all the centuries and cities and towns and languages and ages. And, and Jesus saying, I stand in solidarity with my brothers and sisters. He happily represents us to the Father. He is leading the charge in heaven for us. He doesn't lose any of his children. Friends, yes, God is in control. He's not ashamed. And he will bring his brothers and sisters home to the Father. So Jesus will share the future with us. And thirdly, Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffered for us. So in this paragraph, the, the writer is expanding to, to show us precisely the lowness that Jesus went through to secure a future for us. And again, it's reinforcing this view that God's control isn't distant, it's not superficial, it's not artificial, but rather God has come up close and personal. The Son has taken on human flesh and blood. He became like us. That is, he entered into the human condition. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. The Bible shows us that God cannot and must not tolerate sin. And yet he came into the world and he shared our humanity. And he went the whole way. He entered that the lowest of the low, we're told, he went to the grave. 
verses 14 and 15, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free us, those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Here at Mentone Baptist Church, we believe in the devil. We believe in a spiritual being that is known as the devil. We don't believe some of the crazy things that people might talk or say or suggest about the devil. There are some pretty crazy ideas out there. But we do believe what the Bible teaches us about the devil. Verse 14 reminds us that there is an evil oppressor. He is opposed to God. His name or he's, he's the devil. And the devil is running around controlling subjecting, ruining, abusing. He's like a slaveholder. That's the language here of slavery, isn't it? And he brings death to everyone. That's his goal. And so we are right to fear that death. But here God is saying, but Jesus has snapped that power in half, or he torpedoed it, if you like, and he has freed those who are held in slavery by the fear of death. Christianity is freedom. It is freedom from the fear of death because Jesus has died. He went to the grave. He has been raised from the dead and his resurrection is our hope. Christianity is about freedom. Do you remember Spartacus? Yes, obviously not that old, but you know, Spartacus was a real figure, lived in what the second century, no, first century, first century BC. Uh, he was a slave in ancient Rome, but he broke free and he started a rebellion. And thousands of, of slaves began to, to flee from their owners and, 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 and join Spartacus to fight for their freedom. And so they started marching to the sea to leave uh, Italy for good. But against the, the legions of Rome, there was only one way this was going to end. Many of them, thousands of them were killed. And the survivors were either returned to their slave masters or they were crucified alongside Spartacus. Now, in the, the famous movie, uh, there's a scene in the movie where, where Kirk Douglas, he plays the role of Spartacus, um, and he's been captured by the Roman legions, and the survivors uh, are all sort of mingled together, and then the, the Roman uh, soldiers are asking and demanding to know which one is Spartacus, right? Who's the identity of Spartacus? And one of them yells out, I'm Spartacus. And then another, no, I'm Spartacus. And another, and another. And so each one was willing to identify with Spartacus to try and, and save him, to take his place. But friends, understand, outside Jerusalem that day, there was no one putting up their hand to defend Jesus or to stand with Jesus or to stand alongside him. Even his best friends fled the scene because the weight of the burden that Jesus was carrying was too great. The shame, the horror of the cross was too much. But he went ahead. And death is broken and we are made free. And so the scriptures say, look, let's read from verse 16. Surely it's not the angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Jesus understands us. He gets us. He knows what it's like to be human. And to this very day, Jesus remains not only fully God, but fully human. Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them. God being in control, notice that, for this reason, to God being in control, and I'm sure sometimes we wonder, well, we're trying to make sense of suffering in our lives or in the world. I mean, is suffering a mistake? Is my suffering outside of God's sovereign care and control? Is it beyond his understanding? Two things can be true at the same time. Two things that might seem uh, to be opposite or in contradiction can both be true together. The Bible tells us God hates suffering. And here is an example of where the Bible says, well, in some way, it conforms to his purposes. Often we don't understand the whys and the hows of the suffering that we're experiencing or that we're seeing other people experience. That doesn't mean God's plan is broken or that he's lost control. You see, even with uh, Google and predictive texting, even if you've got a drone and it's hovering overhead, our vision is always going to be partial. We can't see everything. We just don't have the knowledge to see everything. Our sight is limited. Or think about you know, when there's a new series on Prime or Netflix and so you watch an episode, but then you've got to wait another week for the next episode to drop and, you, and, and you don't have all of the information, do you? You've got bits and strands of information about the story, but you don't know how it's going to finish. You don't see how everything's going to fit. Friends, our vision today is partial. We don't understand everything. But what we can't see, God does see, and therefore we can trust him. And Hebrews is saying to us, Jesus' suffering wasn't without design or purpose. He suffered, and that his suffering served for our salvation. You see, that means as Christians, we can say with certainty, God understands what we go through. He understands what it means to be a person because Jesus became like us. Now, people you know, love hearing about Jesus who understands us. He, he, he kind of gets us. We, we, that's kind of comforting, and it really is, isn't it? Profoundly comforting. But we, as Christians, we don't want to stop there because the text is saying more than that. It's saying Jesus' suffering is the cause for our salvation. Look at verse 18. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That word atonement is literally propitiation. Propitiation is a technical word that means penal substitution. And that means Christ died in our place, bearing the wrath of God for us. That is what's going on in the the cross. It is not the only aspect of the atonement, but it is central to what Jesus was doing in his death. He died carrying our sin and facing God's justice as our substitute. So verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a scene in Shakespeare's Henry V where on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, King Henry walks among his soldiers. So King Henry V is a famous English king. He won one of the most successful military campaigns in British history. 
uh, in France, that is. He, he, and one night on the eve of the battle, he, what he does, he borrows the cloak from one of his lieutenants. He wraps it around himself, kind of like a, as a disguise, and he wanders around the camp. And he sits with the ordinary soldiers, and he's listening to their fears, and, and he's trying to comfort them. But they don't realize who they're talking to as they're having this conversation, like with the king. Uh, and in fact, with one of the soldiers, he exchanges a, a glove. Anyway, he's sitting with his men around the campfire. King Henry is there without the soldiers realizing who he's in. He's beginning, uh, this is Henry starts talking about the king. And he's trying to convey, you know, the king actually gets what the soldiers are going through. In fact, they share a lot in common. And so there is this line in Shakespeare's play that says this, where King Henry is trying to console uh, his men. He says, I think the king is but a man as I am. The violet smells to him as it doth to me. The elements show to him as it doth to me. All his senses have but human conditions. His ceremonies laid by in his nakedness. He appears but a man. And though his affections are higher mounted than ours, yet when they stoop, they stoop with the like wing. In other words, he's saying King Henry, even without his robes and his crown, he's like any other man, but he's still king. But he gets us. God the Son walked this earth. He never took off his divinity. But what he did, he became man. And he wore that naked condition that every human being shares and has, feeling the, the cold and the tired, enjoying the, the taste of wine and good food, knowing the hurt from insult, the pain of betrayal, feeling the bruise or the calluses from working hands. He, he understood it all. The superior eternal one served. The superior one suffered. The superior one substituted himself for sinful people. The superior one shares his glory. He says, here are my brothers and sisters. Friends, that's Jesus. That's Christianity. We're not living in the new world yet that God has promised we're still living in, in the world where there is suffering and death and, and we, can, we contribute to that problem. But we do see him who was made low now alive and freeing and adopting many. The reality is we do not understand everything that is going on in the world or in our own lives. I don't understand everything. You don't. But Jesus understands us. He became human in every way. We're never fully in control, but God is, and the suffering and crowning of his son proves it. And he, this Jesus, will share his glory with his brothers and sisters. In, in a moment, we're going to be uh, singing uh, that famous old hymn, And Can It Be? Uh, as we do sing, can, I wonder, can we say, these words are mine? I, I, I really do believe them. These words are mine. And maybe perhaps for the very first time you can sing them and believing them to be true for you. Just let me read out a few of the lines from that, this hymn. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? He died for me. For me who caused his pain. For me, for who him to death pursued. 
Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let us pray. Father, as much as we wish we could uh, be in control over everything that's going on in our own lives and perhaps even further afield, we are very much aware of our fragility and sinfulness and knowing that our knowledge is very partial. We, we just do not see all things. But Father, we thank you for this incredible reminder today that you are in control and you have proven that to us in sending your only son, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now crowned with power and glory and honour. Father, we thank you that in Christ, the future is secure for us. He represents us before your throne. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So, Father, give us great confidence in you this day. Give us great comfort knowing that you understand us. And even more so, the Lord Jesus died in our place on the cross. So, Father, we thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.